Okay, welcome to the Pathfinder Executive Search Podcast. I'm Bruce Wright. Today I'll be talking to Edward Lucas, who is a journalist and broadcaster. And uh, the gap between a professional like Edward and uh, an amateur like me is uh, is pretty clear today. Uh, Edward just speaks so fluently on what is a big, complicated subject. So I urge you to check out his own podcast on iTunes by searching Edward Lucas. And his Twitter handle is simply Edward Lucas. And his website is the same, followed by .com. There you can get a, a list of books he's written and, uh, and other shows that he's been uh, a participant on. Okay, so before we get into my talk with Edward, uh, a little housekeeping on the podcast. And to everyone who listened to the non-exec conversations, thank you. And to those who've mailed and offered feedback, I am especially grateful. I also want to apologize for some of the varying sound quality on the podcast. I guess it's to be expected when putting together uh, something for the first time. And I reasoned that if you wanted to hear about non-exec work, it wouldn't matter too much to uh, to the uh, the people who are actually interested. Anyway, I think we're seeing uh, steady improvements in that area, so hopefully it should sound uh, more and more professional as we go along. Secondly, uh, I think I'm probably the weak link on these podcasts, and I'm actually quite surprised by how different it is to my usual work of investigating and assessing people, but it's Certainly very enjoyable, so while I can think of interesting things to do, I'll continue to do these podcasts. Okay, so on to this episode, and today we're talking cybersecurity, cyber warfare, the Cold War, Trump, Edward Snowden, and Brexit, with someone who, in many respects, was my inspiration to start this podcast. Uh, I connected with Edward after listening to just an excellent radio show he made for the BBC a couple of years ago. The show was called The Nervous Breakdown of the Internet, which uh, is still worth listening to, by the way, because it was just such a lucid snapshot uh, of the security landscape we are currently living in and really seems to have come of age and been proven correct by recent events like the ransomware attack on the NHS. In addition to his superb broadcasting, he is senior editor at The Economist and was Moscow bureau chief from 98 to 2002 and has written multiple books covering, amongst other things, cybersecurity, not surprisingly, Vladimir Putin and Edward Snowden. He's also been a correspondent for The Independent and The Daily Mail and is senior fellow and contributing editor at the Centre for European Policy Analysis in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Hello, Bruce. It's nice to be on the programme. Edward, first of all, have I given you a, a decent summary of, uh, of what you've been what you've been up to over the last uh, sort of couple of decades? Yes, it's a funny mixture because I started off really as a cold warrior trying to destroy communism in Eastern Europe, and then looking at the uh, what we then called the post-communist countries, the ones that are emerging from the shadow of uh, their time in the Soviet Empire. And it was a bit of a stretch in a way to go from that to cybersecurity. But in a way, it, it fitted together very well. I'd always been quite techy and interested in how um, one could get online from behind the Iron Curtain and all the funny devices and things we use to communicate. And it also seemed to me, in another sense, that we were facing the same sort of problem in cybersecurity as we were facing in European security, that we had a, a rules-based order that we all trusted, um, but it wasn't really secure against people 
who wanted to attack us and to exploit the loopholes. And that was both true of the way that Vladimir Putin's Russia was mucking around with the post-1991 security order. And it was also true of the way that um, hooligans and pranksters and criminals and um, state actors were attacking the uh, the way in which the Internet was set, was set up. And um, so I saw some parallels there, and I've been quite happy to try and uh, draw them as much as possible. Uh, slightly um, on a side issue from the uh, uh, from from cybersecurity, but I mean, my my better half is actually from uh, Eastern Europe, and there's still when I visit there and, and speaking to her, there, there was quite a lot of sympathy, and and certainly in uh, my mother-in-law, there's some. I guess nostalgia and, and, and longing for those old days. Do you do you find the same thing? I know you spend a lot of time in that part of the world and, and certainly have done in the past. Well, I think there's always nostalgia, even for things we didn't like. And so in this country, people who remember the war and the rationing and the fear and danger of the war also also remember the kind of yeah, we sometimes talk about the dunkirk spirit and yeah, the blitz spirit absolutely the blitz yeah. spirit so so i think it's 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 quite normal to look back on things that were basically horrible but also to some extent miss the um the 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 the, the way we responded to those times so i mean i was trying to destroy communism um but at the same mm. time i i if I get a whiff of the smell of um, lignite in the air, which was the way that the um, cities like Prague were heated, I get a tremendous burst of, of a, a kind of not, not exactly nostalgia. But I think it's also true that for many people, they invested their lives in that system and they you know, spent the best years of their lives trying to make the best of life in a communist country. And then the system collapses and they're left often, you know, sorry, my clock's going in the background, um, that they, the, the system collapses and they're perhaps a bit too old to make the best of the new system, that what they knew was how to you know, have a job, have a reasonable life, bring up a family, um, you know, pursue their hobbies in this communist system. And now everything's expensive, it's uncertain, they're all mm. at sea. And they do feel a bit disoriented, and I think it's quite normal for people, even if they wouldn't actually want to go back to secret police states and the planned economy, to say the stuff about that era I really missed because I knew what to do and how to do it, and yeah, I felt quite, in a way, quite comfortable in it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I'd, I'd love to get into uh, that a bit more deeply with you, but uh, not uh, not why I've asked you for your time today. So could we um, begin? I mean, you, you sort of covered quite a bit off uh, with, with your opening, but you were quite pessimistic with your show back in 2015 about, um, about the state of uh, security. Could you sort of, I guess, give us a, a quick update and, and how you see the landscape at the moment in that area? I did that radio program in the aftermath of the Talk Talk breach, and That's I featured right, someone yeah. who I featured someone who had been scammed on the basis of a fairly limited set of personal data, which um, had been obtained by a criminal. And they phoned up pretending to be from Talk Talk, and um, this poor chap lost his life savings of a couple of thousand pounds because mm. he was talked into. Um, going on to his internet banking, giving control of his computer to a fraudster who then took it. And at the time, that seemed pretty dramatic. That's pretty commonplace now. This sort of thing happens all the time. And I think the main message of my program was that the criminal economy is evolving much faster um, and with much more sort of oomph than law enforcement and our ability to, to combat it. And so cybercrime is getting bigger and better all the time. Um, the 
police aren't keeping up and the other um, bits of the system that are meant to protect us aren't really keeping up. I think the the way the banks deal with internet fraud is scandalously um, weak, really. I mean, it's like the way they used to do with credit card fraud 20 or 30 years ago. And so I'm afraid that the criminals have got open seas. And then, of course, on all the other things, it's even worse, these kind of geopolitical attacks. If, in a, if I'd said in 2015 that the Americans, that the Russians were going to attack the American political system and do so pretty successfully, people would have said, what are you smoking? This is a, you know, a ludicrously pessimistic um, prognosis. But actually, that just happened. And I think much more bad stuff lies ahead. So, so I think that the, the rather gloomy, that program was seen as rather gloomy at the time, but I'm afraid the gloomy um, take was vindicated and there's, I, mean, I fear it's going to get continued. In fact, I'm, I'm sure it's going to continue to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, I was actually, I was wanted to touch on the whole Trump saga a little bit later, but um, uh, for now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because it seems to have left the headlines now, what is the latest on the ransomware attack on the NHS? I mean, how serious was it? Well, ransomware is fundamentally a pretty crude attack. It's like DDoS attacks. These are the um, very basic things. You can buy the tools online. You can buy the um, data sets for deploying those tools online, and you can make a pretty um, reasonable return if you don't mind being paid in Bitcoin. I think that the and the good thing about this is that so long as you back your data up and so long as you're willing to um, you know, throw a fair amount of hardware away and start again, um, you can recover quite quickly from a ransomware attack. And we're getting better at it. This is almost like the equivalent of someone putting super glue in a lock. It's extremely inconvenient, but in the end, you can you know, drill out the lock mm. or replace the door. You can, we can survive those. I, I'm, I, and and the, as I wrote in the Times recently, the three most important letters in cybersecurity are C, I, and A. C is for confidentiality of data, I is for integrity, and A is availability. Now, ransomware at the moment attacks the A, the A availability. And that's the one I'm least worried about because the solution for uh, lack of a- availability of data is, is to have a backup. And so we are now getting much better and quite quickly getting better at um, backing up our databases. It's something you can insure against, in fact, as well. And so if you have a ransomware attack, you basically throw all your computers, put in new ones, reboot the system um, using the backup, and you're up and running in business. And there are also some quite good tools that will spot a ransomware attack when it's underway and will um, prevent it scrambling your database. So I'm, although this is very inconvenient and I, you know, I feel very sad for the hospitals that were hit and for the people who lost their appointments, this is not the sort of um, threat that keeps me awake at night. Mm. Uh, specifically on, um, uh, I think George Osborne gave a speech uh, several years ago when he was Chancellor about um, you know cyber attacks will begin to be measured in lives lost. Did we get close to that during the NHS uh, attack? Because it would seem, you know, if something was going to cause loss of life in, in a ransomware attack, it, it would be on a hospital. Did, do we know if anything like that happened? I'm always very sceptical about this kind of lives at risk and lives lost. It's a, and, I, and speaking as a journalist, it's a great sort of journalistic device. But mm. on the, on, you, you, even heavy rain will cost life. Heavy rain makes an ambulance drive more slowly. Statistically, someone somewhere in the country will get to the hospital too late because of heavy rain. We wouldn't say heavy rain costs lives, but yeah, there, sure. there, are all, there are always going to be marginal cases where any 
delay, any inconvenience, any shortage of money will always cost a life and anything we can do to speed things up and put a bit more money in and you know, do things more efficiently will gain a life. So that's, you know, there's a kind of always a slope on this. And I, I don't think at the moment that one can say that ransomware um, or cyber attacks are costing lives um, any more than all sorts of other things that can go wrong or go right in our um, the way we run our, our health service. Uh, what we haven't yet had is the sort of catastrophic attack, say, on the power network or the sewage network, where you get a um, something that's gone so badly wrong that there's a really sort of major system breakdown um, where, you know, drinking water no longer becomes safe to drink or you can't heat your home in winter and people start getting hypothermia. Um, mm. I'm not sure that we're going to get to those sort of attacks. They're, they're, they're good mental exercises to think about what we'd do if it happened and what can we do to pre- prevent them. But I, uh, so far, we haven't seen an attack like that, at least not mm. in this country. No, it's interesting. We're very uh, keen on having sort of uh, exercise, aren't we, between the emergency services for uh, more obvious terror attacks. But um, I, I wonder, and, and perhaps you could comment on it, what's happening behind the scenes for uh, to prepare for that sort of eventuality. Well, I mean, obviously, because it's behind the scenes is for a reason, and we don't want to give the hmm. um, Russians or the Chinese or cyber criminals um, absolutely up to the minute information about all the things we're doing to try and stop them or to catch them if they do bad things. Um, and Insofar as I'm, you know, people tell me things in, in confidence, I, I stick to, stick to those confidences. But of I think course. that I think, but I think that the, I mean, what really bothers me is that we are not disrupting the criminal economy. And if your listeners um, obviously don't remember, but would like to imagine, they're living in London in the 1850s. Um, we had a burglary epidemic um, in the, 19, the middle of the 19th century. So we had urbanization, lots of poor people, rich people living in houses, and the houses had nice stuff, and people would break in and steal things. And this was a real problem, and we had all sorts of different ways of dealing with it. We had Robert Peel putting the, the police force on the streets. But the thing that was really effective was the Re- Receiving Stolen Goods Act, where we went after the fences, the people who handled stolen goods. And we made that into a really, really serious crime. Um, where you could go to jail for 20 years, far more serious than burglary. And we need to do the same thing um, when it comes to cybercrime. We need to say that if you are um, engaged in you know, stealing from people's bank accounts and then collecting those money in these so-called mule accounts or trying to turn them into the real world um, you know, buy stuff with them, that's where we're going to hit you and hit you very hard. And that requires not only the criminal justice system, but also the banks and other parts of the financial system to be much, much better organized. And it's, a, it's really shocking to me that when these cyber criminals phone someone up and get them to transfer some money over the Internet, that no one is really asking, how did these criminals manage to open a bank account? Where's the CCTV? What documents did they show? Were those documents used to open any other accounts? If so, well, we should be keeping a very close eye on that. Also, the bank should be saying, is this the sort of transaction um, that Bill or Steve or Emma or whoever normally makes? And if it's not that sort of transaction, why are we allowing them to make it now? So there's a whole raft of things we should be doing to disrupt um, and constrain cybercrime, which we're just not doing at the moment. And that makes me really cross. No, I'm I'm quite surprised about that as well, actually. Is, is it simply a, a cost-benefits analysis by the banks? They're not losing that much yet, so it's not a priority for them. Is it? Is it that cynical? 
think it's a mixture of greed and laziness and also to some extent fear of collective of, of, of talking about the problem um, you know, lowers morale so uh, on one level the losses from cybercrime are mainly not covered um, borne by the banks they're borne by the individuals and what the banks tend to say is well very sorry you gave away your internet banking credentials and there's not very much we can do about it so it's a bit like if you and if you keep a lot of and for those of your listeners who remember checkbooks if you had a lot of blank checks in your pocket that you kept signed and dated and then someone nicks the checks and um fills in themselves as the payee uh, the bank will say, well, that's not really our fault, is it? You shouldn't have signed. And, 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 and we've, we, a, a, a lot of cybercrime is basically the equivalent of people handing out signed blank checks to um, criminals and then complaining when it happens. So obviously the banks you know, can, can have, have got a point there. But actually, I think they should sure. be saying, well, well, we will make it a lot easier um, for you, the customer, not to be ripped off. And they don't do that. So there's, there's a laziness factor and, and the, the cost is, is not borne by them. And I think they also feel that they've invested a huge amount in trying to make internet banking convenient and cheap and seamless and so, and, and so on. And they don't now want to be retailing a lot, you know, telling people it's all terribly dangerous and, and watch out because that would be pushing mm. people, customers in the wrong direction. Now I think what that actually does is exemplify what's really wrong with the internet altogether, which is that ever since we started the internet, we've always put low cost convenience, flexibility, adaptability, innovation, these things as our top priorities. And security has always come way, way, way down the list. Now, that was, you know, has been fantastic from the point of view of making the Internet into the central nervous system of modern life. And we can do amazing things on the Internet that the founders of the Internet would never have conceived of. But yeah. it comes at a tremendous cost that it's a paradise for the what I call the malefactors, whether they're spies, criminals, hooligans, pranksters um, or whoever. Yeah, sure. It's, it's that tug of war between freedom to do what you want with the internet and, and security it's uh, at the heart of it i want to pivot quite quickly away from that because i'm conscious of time uh, edward so I, I wanted to um, and, and i'm certainly guilty of this we still seem to be talking about laptops and pcs and uh, and computers as, as, as to where uh, where this is happening um but mobile has exploded in the last you know say let's say two to three years especially uh, is that a particular sort of a fertile hotbed of, uh, of criminality is, is that a real problem or is, is it emerging or it's, it's not something i tend to think about too much but that's probably probably a mistake yes i think it's very important not to draw artificial dividing lines that um you know the in in the old days a computer was a thing the size of a room which was op, you know, with, with people called operators who had punch cards and or tape with holes in it and and, then they, and now you know, a computer can be your smoke alarm, your fridge, your phone, your laptop, I mean, anything that has, you know, I mean, the, 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 the real three elements we have are um, processing power, um, which is ubiquitous, and storage, um, which, is, which, is, which is also um, ubiquitous, and the um, ability to um, display, and, um, dis display and collect data, which is also ubiquitous and the, these 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 are um so the idea that you know, that there isn't a sort of this is a computer this is not a computer a vast number of devices we deal with will have some sort of um power and the um you, know, you can have a, a usb cufflink 
um, if you're a bloke or USB pendant or ear, earrings I've seen also, which can mm. store, um, many, many gigabytes of data. And you can, and you know, you can have more data in your cufflink or your earring than would be an entire university library. You can also have software on that, um, uh, cufflink or earring, which you plug into a computer and can do either amazingly good things or amazingly bad things. So I think we've got to stop, and, and this is only going to get um, more pervasive and more ubiquitous as we move into the um, min- miniaturization improves the ability to capture um, energy from background sources. You no longer need a power source. You can just run s- small devices off Wi-Fi if there's Wi-Fi there in the background. Um, you can use you know, tiny little drones that can be powered either by Wi-Fi or by the sun, which can fly around and, and, and do things. So all these sort of evolutionary responses that we have dating from the days when we were dodging saber-toothed tigers and hunting porcupines and trying to find honey up trees, which is how our senses have evolved. All these senses are pretty useless when it comes to to dealing with the the way the internet is evolving. So, so yeah, I absolutely, I mean, the the, the shift from, from desktop to mobile is worth looking at, but that's just a tiny part of a sort of vast transition in, into back, you know, the sort of what I call the sort of pervasive and ubiquitous um, presence of, of, of computing power. Yeah, well, that's um, that's just a, a fascinating way of putting it. Edward, I won't ask you to betray any confidences, and, and obviously um, uh, most of this stuff will be will be private, but how much collaboration is there between the private sector and the government in, in dealing with this, I guess I'm talking specifically about the UK, but I mean, if you had a, a wider view about Europe or the US, that would be uh, that'd be interesting to hear. I think it's getting a lot better, and and one of the big problems we had was that GCHQ, which was the bit of our government that knew most about the security of computers and networks, was also the most secretive of our three intelligence um, agencies, and that was the same in the United States, where NSA was known as no such agency. And they sort of had the most, although, although they were a huge organization, had sort of almost no public profile. And we're now, you know, the, these organizations are moving far more front and center stage because um, they are becoming, you know, GCHQ is now set up the National Cybersecurity Center, which is its sort of full public, public facing um, uh, side or, or division. And so we're getting a lot better at finding ways in which the um, government agencies can, can – and, and it used to be um, 10 years ago, GCHQ or NSA would go and see a British you know, FTSE 250 or FTSE 100 company and say, um, we've got some bad news for you. Um, you're under a cyber attack from the Chinese or Iranians or whoever. And the, the FTSE company would go, you what? Yeah, they would have absolutely no idea, and they would, and they would, be, they wouldn't really even know how to deal. Here's a man who doesn't even give his second name, who doesn't have a visit, visiting card, who has been, you know, come through some third party introduction, and it turns out and says, "I work in Cheltenham, and I've got some bad news for you." And the, the, and we were, we weren't at all good at working out how much can you tell, you know, how, how you get information from the kind of classified side to the unclassified side, and back again, because a lot of the information that the um, our security intelligence agencies need is out there in the daily experience of the of the private or non non government sector. So I think we're working out how to do this, and we're 
creating what I call a cybersecurity culture, which is a bit like what we had in the 1970s and 80s when we were dealing with Irish terrorism, that obviously you know, journalists are journalists, businessmen are businessmen, are um, intelligence officers, intelligence officer, but we kind of learnt how to deal with the terrorist threat, with things like if you see a bag that's unattended, mm-hmm. um, you know, report it. That's yeah, that could be that could that could be a bomb. And this was a, a big shift. You know, no one in Britain in the 1960s would have thought there was anything unusual about a suitcase sitting at a railway station. They would think, well, someone's just put their suitcase down. They've probably gone to get a cup of tea. Not my business. You know, move on. Whereas now, um, yeah, the uh, uh, yeah, we, we, so we developed quite a good culture of observing and reporting and integrating the eyes and ears on all sides. And I, and I think we're, 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 we're getting there on the, when it comes to computers and networks, although it's you know, far, from, far from perfect. Mm. Oh, interesting. Human behavior is, uh, is obviously a, a massive part of this. Uh, I want to rattle through another couple of quick questions, Edward, and uh, be as... Um... Uh, brief as you like, so I'm, I'm very conscious of your time. But a um, lot of concerns over big government. Is it really big brother and, and that sort of thing? Now, I, I listen, you mentioned the NSA earlier. I, I've listened to uh, an interview. I've, I've blanked on the gentleman's name, but he was the only guy to be head of the NSA and the CIA. Uh, and really, coming this all, a lot of this came to came to a head um, during the, the the Edward Snowden affair. Um, and listening to this former head of the NSA, he said, really, nothing has changed. We weren't doing anything illegal. Uh, I think they've changed slightly how some information is stored. It now just sits with a phone company and, and not on NSA servers. I'd be curious, and it's, it's not really um, to do with the, the business side of things, but uh, what's your view of, of Snowden, particularly in light of the, uh, the, the upcoming Oliver Stone film that's going to be coming out of him? Hero or villain? Oh, definitely villain. I wrote a book uh, about Snowden called The Snowden Operation. I think he should die in jail. I think he's a, yeah, he did a, a small amount of, of good and a great deal of harm. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't count as a whistleblower. And I think that there are extremely serious questions about his relationship with the um, Russian state, not only now that he's in Moscow, but also beforehand. So I, and I think that he epitomized a kind of hysterical misunderstanding about what our security intelligence agencies are up to, um, which is based on people who watch The Born Identity and think it's a documentary. <laughs> and, and, and it's not. You know, I mean, the, mm. the, the people who, who work at our intelligence services are just like us. Um, they are, in, in, maybe, maybe they even went to university at the same time as us, and you know, we, they have sure. um, families just like we do and hobbies just like we do, and they, are, you know, they, they, they go to work every day trying to catch um, and frustrate, uh, catch spies and criminals and frustrate um, people who are trying to do harm to our country. And the idea that there's some kind of vast plot out there to, you know, um, control our, our democracy or our thinking is just fanciful. And what, and what really struck mm. me, and I, I mean, I could bore on for hours about this, but I mean, the thing that was really striking for me about the Snowden, so-called Snowden revelations, was that although he showed a great deal of, of evidence that a foreign intelligence service was engaged in shock horror foreign intelligence, he couldn't find any evidence at all that the NSA was 
aren't remotely trying to influence domestic American politics or that it was remotely involved in promoting the interests of American companies. And when he first started coming out with his revelations, I thought the two things that would be really devastating would lead to an upheaval of the kind we saw in the 1970s would be if it turned out that he was spying, you know, the NSA was spying for the Obama administration against either Republicans or the Occupy movement or the Tea Party or things like that. Or secondly, if there was any sign that they were using the tools of the NSA to, you know, to spy for ExxonMobil or something like that. And there was absolutely no evidence of that. All they were doing was their job, which is to find out what foreigners are up to, inform the um, American government about it, and basically do exactly what GCHQ does, exactly what the German Foreign Intelligence Service does, exactly what the French Foreign Intelligence Service does, exactly what every foreign intelligence service does. And so I, th I thought there was an astonishing level of hysteria and naivety in response to Snowden, um, which did terrible harm both to the standing of the intelligence and security agencies in our countries and also to our alliances. So I, I, I'm extremely, and everything that's happened with Snowden makes me more and more suspicious about what his real motives were. No, I, I, um, I largely agree with that. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm hardly an expert, but he just seems to be, um, he gets more and more tainted the longer this goes on, as, as far as I can see. But, um, but not, not that my opinion counts so much. Um, OK, well, look, finally, Brexit, Trump, uh, I'm thinking specifically of Trump uh, creating an alliance, you know, some sort of cyber command that he spoke about a little while ago. Do you, do you think industry, uh, particularly the, the security uh, industry, is going to have any specific things to deal with uh, as a result of Trump and, and the Brexit vote? I don't think that there's any real agenda for cooperation between the United States and Russia when it comes to cyber. Russia's an adversary. Um, and this is, so this sort of uh, idea, and, and I think Trump has backed away from that. I think that we are in a very difficult position now with Trump because America is still the most important country in the world in terms of our security, but it's run by someone who doesn't really think through what he's saying and who has many of whose instincts are actually antithetical to what we want to do. So um, I think this, these are tough times for Atlanticists like me. I do think that the, you know, in terms of the sort of tussle between Trump and the American Constitution, the American Constitution is winning hands down, and that will continue to be the case and the upshot of it all will be that the Trump presidency is, a para is, is about paralysis and effectiveness rather than about sort of big bad schemes. As far as Brexit's concerned, I strongly against it. I think it's going to be make Britain a weaker and poorer country and I wish it wasn't happening. I still harbour a slim hope perhaps less slim than it was a few months ago, that Brexit's going to be so catastrophic that we may even um, turn away as we approach the cliff edge and try to do um, and, and think of something else. But I, I think that the, you know, the, the I'm, I'm strongly against referendums generally because they produce these sort of strange binary choices, which aren't r mm. real choices. And if you'd said to the British public, there's going to be either this kind of Brexit or this kind of staying in. I think people have said that we want this kind of staying in, but the choice was between all possible um, Brexits and one kind of staying in. And so people voted for different sorts of Brexits, but all under the same tick on the ballot paper. And now it turns out there's only one of these Brexits is available, and it's not going to be a very advantageous one. Uh, but anyway, Bruce, it's been a great pleasure being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, and um, um, please call me, have, have me on again soon. Not at all, not at all. Edward, uh, I can't thank you enough. I think that has just been uh, absolutely wonderful and fascinating. So uh, I will let you get on with your weekend.
Okay, so that was Edward Lucas, and uh, I'm sure you'll agree that was absolutely brilliant. Until next time, many thanks for listening.